You just heard an excerpt from Anthracite Fields, which was written by Julia Wolfe. And this is Artworks, the weekly podcast produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. I'm Josephine Reed. Composer Julia Wolfe has a musical toolkit that's both wide and deep. It's music that's unexpected, yet impossible to imagine any other way. And it's very much her own. Julia Wolfe has written major bodies of work for strings, from quartets to full orchestra, taking inspiration from wherever she finds it. Cruel Sister, for example, a piece for string orchestra, was inspired by a traditional English ballad, while My Beautiful Scream was inspired by the idea of a slow-motion scream. Julia Wolfe is also one of the founders and an artistic director of the music collective Bang on a Can. It was begun in 1987 as a one-day marathon concert in a New York art gallery. Now Bang on a Can has grown to a multifaceted performing arts organization. Julia calls it her musical family, and she credits it with allowing her to dream and to dare musically. And she has taken those dares. Indeed, she was a recipient of the 2015 Herb Albert Award in Music, and in 2016, she was named a MacArthur Fellow. In the past few years, Julia Wolfe has created three major pieces of work about events in American labor history. Steel Hammer, which takes the John Henry legend as its subject, Anthracite Fields, an oratorio that looks at Pennsylvania coal mining and won the 2015 Pulitzer Prize for music, and finally Fire in My Mouth, an oratorio that examines the 1911 Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire. Labor and oratorio seemed to me like such an unlikely marriage. I became really curious to find out what drew Julia Wolfe to these historical projects. It, it sort of reached a point in my creative work or creative life where I felt like I needed to make a bigger statement. I wasn't sure what that, what that statement was going to be. And in some ways, I started with a sound, really. I wanted kind of a raw sound that draws from... American folk traditions, um, other folk traditions. And then I went looking for a story. So it was interesting that it really started with sound before before history. I should say back in my beginnings of college, I guess I, I had no thought of studying music. I mean, I played folk guitar, I'd studied some piano, but I actually thought I would be studying social sciences. And I took classes, and one class in particular, that focused on the American worker, actually on, on workers in general and what about on the workplace. So uh, my early interest was very political and, and, and sociological, and I somehow veered into, almost accidentally, into a music class, and, you know, I got the bug. But then you married those two passions. You married music to history. How did that happen? Well, the kickoff was uh, a piece called Steel Hammer, and that was written for the Bang and the Can All-Stars and Trio Medieval, who are a wonderful um, Norwegian folk group. Um, and the Bang and the Can All-Stars are my home band. And I just kept coming back to the John Henry story, uh, the John Henry ballad, and just fascinated by by the story, you know, this man fighting against the machine, in a, in a very basic way. He's digging a tunnel. The machine has been brought in to take his place. 
and just the many, many versions of that ballad and it having so much meaning to so many different groups of people and the connection to work songs um, and protest. So that began with this piece, Steel Hammer. And that eventually was followed up by Anthracite Fields, which was a much more in-depth research piece where I'm actually going into a community. In this case, it was the Anthracite Coal community in, in northeastern Pennsylvania, which is close to where I grew up. And just immersing myself in that community and that and understanding what that industry was, who we were uh, as a people in, in relation to that industry. And I guess the interest just kept growing and growing. The one thing about those two pieces is they're fairly guy-heavy. You know, John Henry's a big, muscly man. The miners were men. Uh, in both of those pieces, there are important threads of women, which was very important to me. But all of a sudden, I was like, well, wait a minute. These are fascinating subjects and very American. But I really want to take a look at, at women in the workplace, along with other things that drew me to the subject. That took me to the garment workers in New York City at the turn of the century, which is this recent piece uh, that's just performed, um, Fire in My Mouth. Well, I just want to go back to Steel Hammer and John Henry for one second. There have been so many, so many songs about John Henry, and it just got me wondering, what do you think it is about that story that we as a culture keep coming back to it again and again and again? Well, I, I love the fact that there are so many versions. It's such a beautiful example of the way stories travel, the way music travels. And that is, in a certain sense, what my piece is about, about over 200 versions, that there are all these conflicting facts as well as sort of commonality. But the gist of the story is is this individual person who is suddenly confronted by this machine, which is, of course, still a subject we deal with today. And so this early example of someone who is so determined to, to beat the machine, I think is forever fascinating to all of us here. And in the end, John Henry did outdig the, the machine and I think pretty much every version, but he doesn't exactly win because he dies after he outdigs the, the machine. You know, we're all, I guess, fascinated by working ourselves to death, but also uh, there's so many other just colorful bits of information that come into the ballads that, that there'll be lines like, ain't nothing but a man. You know, it goes by kind of quickly, but if you actually take a look at it and you meditate on some of those words, you think, well, what does that even mean? <laughs> Ain't nothing but a man, you know. And so as you start to dissect the words and play with them and develop patterns and music, then it starts to both gain meaning and sometimes even lose meaning and become just sounds. That's one thing I played with, with that piece. Had folk music been part of your musical world before that? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I grew up in a small town in Pennsylvania and took piano lessons. They're primarily classical piano lessons, although I'd play all kinds of popular tunes and show tunes on the piano. My grandmother would sing and my mother would sing. And then sometime, I guess, early high school, I picked up a folk guitar and started to, you know, try to become Joni Mitchell sort of, <laughs> or something like that. Oh, as we all did. <laughs> yes. Um, 
and just started to write songs and and listen to her harmonies. And I was really drawn to also her use of the mountain dulcimer. But you know, just very casually write write songs and play late into the night. And then when I went to college, I went to the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, Michigan. I went to this very small kind of alternative liberal arts program called the Residential College, an amazing place, a tiny little program with very interesting faculty and politically minded, socially conscious place. And and aside from that, it's, it's a real folk town. And some of the really greatest folk musicians have come from that scene. So one of the, like one of the best harmonica players, Mad Cat Ruth, was based there. Um, and I picked up the Mountain Dulcimer, which is a beautiful lap instrument, you know, usually associated with Appalachian music. So I started to make some instruments. I, I worked for an instrument maker for a while. So it just immersed myself into this world. There's also a, a pretty well-known folk house there called The Ark, and I did some performances there. And it's just a great, great... That's right. There is, yes. Still there. Not the same original location, but, but still active. So this was a wonderful environment to walk into. And so while I was gleaning from the folk world, I was also getting interested in experimental classical music, contemporary music. So uh, somehow these worlds came together. <laughs> they're, they're somewhat disparate, or they definitely were at that time. Well, you're known for having a very wide and very deep musical tool bag. Yeah, I love all kinds of music. And I really do believe that it sort of naturally becomes a part of you, whether you're conscious of it or not, whatever you're listening to, whatever you're running across, even if you're, as you're walking down the street, you hear something blaring out of a car, which you often hear in New York City, but it's all part of your, your world. I wonder how your musical ideas begin to take shape. And it might be easiest to focus on a particular piece like Anthracite Fields, which also won a Pulitzer. Congratulations. Thank you. You mentioned you did research, and so you have all this information, and you talk to people. Did you go down into a mine? Yeah, I went down into three mines. Oh, my God. It's, it's actually, anyone can go. Um, one of them was a somewhat closed-up mine, which was a little bit uh, precarious. But at the Anthracite Heritage Museum, which is an amazing, amazing little museum in Scranton, Pennsylvania, just outside there is this whole setup where they have this trolley car that takes you down very deep into the ground. Usually the guide is, is a retired miner who's leading you through the dark and damp spaces below the earth. It's a really incredible experience. I mean, it's not for everyone. If you're if you're claustrophobic, I would not recommend this. But but it's an amazing world, black and shiny and quite dark. Um, sometimes the guide will show you how dark it is by just turning off the tour light, and it's complete darkness. I don't think I have seen anything quite as dark as the non-lit mine underground. So, yes, that was really important to see that and to be there physically and and then I spent a lot of time at that museum. It's it amazing, amazing exhibits that really depict everything about the life from the wash house where they tried to scrub off this black soot that never could really come off to newspaper articles about political issues or safety issues to the tools they used. And that led me to interview a number of people, so I'm a third-generation miner. And so just amazing to connect with people directly. Um, they were just so open and, and generous, really, with their time and their stories. And I took lots of notes. And so after interviewing people and reading books and watching documentaries and looking at photographs, uh, suddenly all these 
themes emerge and you just know they have to be in the piece. You can't make this piece without somehow touching upon the Breaker Boys, which were these young boys that worked in the mines and the political issues. So that was captured in a speech, a speech that was um, given by John L. Lewis, who was the head of the United Mine Workers Union and was a big advocate for workers' compensation and safety. And so these texts became really alive to me. And some some of the texts I'm just adapting or you know kind of gleaning from existing sources and other parts I'm writing until it all coalesces <laughs> into a composition. And does the music follow, or what's the relationship between the text and the music? Do you have a certain um, melodic line in your mind, and then you can see how certain text will go with that? How how does that work? How do you translate that? Yeah. Uh, well, it's a combination of sometimes the music is creating an environment. So, for example, in the first movement of Anthracite Fields, the title of the first movement is Foundation, and the text is a list of the Johns with one-syllable last names in alphabetical order. So all these names of these Johns came from a much, much longer list that was a, a Pennsylvania index of, of accidents. I think it was from the late 1890s um, or maybe a little bit earlier. But anyway. All these men were in coal mining accidents? Yes. And so that, that's from the, at the turn of the century till maybe about 1916. And they didn't necessarily die, but there they are. There's their name listed and, and just crazy long list of names. So I couldn't possibly set everyone's name. And I wound up just picking, like I said, the Johns with these the one little syllable last name. So it would be like John Ayers, John Ash, John Baines, John Bates, John Carr, John Cash. It'll just kind of go down the alphabet in a kind of chant-like way. So the text is a combination of the Johns and then the descriptions of how coal is formed. So coal is basically just vegetation over a very long period of time, like leaves and branches, a lot of pressure and heat in the ground. And then it, after many, many years, that becomes coal. And so, well, what would the music be for that? Um, I'm creating a kind of a kind of sonic world that's very, very low and deep. So the lowest open string of the double bass and the very bottom end of the bass clarinet. And so you get this kind of whoa, kind of, you know, almost like a deep hum at the beginning. It's kind of a setting. And then as you're saying these names, that I chose to do, in a, like I said, in a kind of chant-like way. So at times I'm setting an environment, and at other times I'm responding to to speech itself. So for example, in the movement called Speech, which is the third movement of Anthracite Fields, um, I had been watching this video of John L. Lewis. He's an amazing speaker and very, very dramatic, intense, and beautiful language. And he's this wonderful, deep voice. And he kind of does this little bend in, in pitch that he does. And so I just kind of took from that and... Um, in that case, there's a solo that Mark Stewart sings. He's the guitarist, but also a wonderful singer. And so I'm inspired by speech and the way this man spoke, and that becomes music. So, so many different ways into expressing everything about this world um, from the people who, who spoke 
for the miners to what you'd be looking at if you were in a mine. The second chapter of Anthracite Fields is about the Breaker Boys, who are the kids who worked in the mines. And the music is very different. They're kids who were workers, certainly, but they're still kids. And the music reflects that. Yeah. Yeah, and, you know, I really wanted to capture that aspect of youth and that they are kids. I mean, it's a very sad situation. The the boys are working in the mines. It's incredibly unhealthy. They don't really have a choice about this. It's complicated, though, because some of the families want their boys in the mines. They're, that tiny bit of income is making a difference. And, and so I wanted to capture a combination of the pain of this setup as well as the incredible boyishness of this, you know, the fun and mischief, mischiefness and uh, all that. So there's a crazy drumbeat, which I think is, you know, what else is adolescent boy than a drumbeat? <laughs> a really hard banging drumbeat. And I did a sort of fun play on the rhymes. There's, there's some local rhymes from that region. One in particular is uh, Mickey Pick Slate, Early and Late. That was the poor little breaker boy's fate. And this was actually from the region and other rhymes that riff off of either using the word coal or are these kind of dark children's rhymes about death. Yes. And, you know, and in that case, musically, I was looking for sounds that would evoke some of these images. Um, So David Cosson, who's playing percussion, is playing drumsticks, like sticks against sticks. It's kind of clickety-clackety sound, you know, so all these kinds of sounds that are somehow playful and evocative of the of the world these boys lived in. intended this to be a multimedia piece? Yeah, from the beginning. Anthracite Fields, I went in thinking um, I wanted it to be this sort of visual, immersive experience as well. And so from the very beginning, I pulled in Jeff Sugg, who's just a wonderful projection designer and so important to the piece because you really are getting the story not only from the singers, but the story is illuminated by what you're looking at. So you're seeing the faces of Breaker Boys, and you're seeing um, strange diagrams and maps of the ground and layers of earth and coal and so many beautiful things that Jeff gathered. And he he actually did the same research that I did, but again, looking for, for the visual bits of information. So we, we work in parallel, and then we kind of get together and talk about what's going on in each movement, and then we go off and work again. But but it's it's music-driven, so Jeff is responding to the arc of the music and the narrative of the music and then building a, a visual scape that um, goes with it. And he did that again for Fire in My Mouth, your most recent work. Yes, that's right. Put the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory in context for us. Who worked there? What were the conditions? Yeah, the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory was on the Lower East Side of New York City, And right at the turn of the century, early 1900s, there were huge waves of immigration. And um, the two main populations that were working in the garment industry in New York City were either Eastern European or Russian Jews and Southern Italians. And the bulk of the workers were were women. So these two populations are are in 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 the factory itself. 
And even before the fire, there was lots of unrest and protest. It was a big factory floor, hundreds of rows of women at sewing machines. You know, they just had terrible working conditions. There's, there was no collective voice. There were no unions. And we're talking about ridiculously long hours, a lot of um, harassment on the job, long hours, very little pay, no compensation, you know, should you be sick or whatever. So in 1909, there was the uprising of 20,000, and everyone just got up out of their chairs and went to the streets. Very, very dramatic. Most of them were women. After the uprising of 20,000, a lot of change happened, but um, not everywhere. The Triangle Factory did not improve working conditions, and there was clear negligence on the part of the factory owners, on the part of the city, and the part of the inspectors. Tell us about the fire and its significance. In 1911, a fire broke out, and the factory was on the 8th, 9th, and 10th floors, and just, it's like a tinderbox. There's all this muslin hanging there, all these thin paper that's used for patterns, and, and apparently the rags and the leftover material hadn't been collected that week yet, and uh, someone dropped a cigarette into a trash can or something like that, and, and the whole place erupted. And so one of the worst work, workplace tragedies in New York City, it's hard to explain how horrific this was, but 146 young, mostly young women, there were men and women, but mostly young immigrant women died in this fire. They were either burned or they, they jumped out of the windows. There were survivors as well, um, but it was it was a shock. I mean, the whole city really went into shock, and a lot of people were standing in Washington Square Park and witnessing this whole thing going on, and it was a real turning point. You know, the whole city mourned. Huge numbers of people came out for the funeral procession. The photographs are really quite remarkable, quite painful. So it was a big turning point. And I think the combination of the earlier protests and then this, unfortunately, this tragedy, people woke up and a lot of fire code laws were put into place and, and you know, many more things relating to work were addressed. Of course, my question to you is then, how do you translate this into music? How did you organize this piece? The one thing that was really important to me was to not just focus on the fire. Fire is the last movement. So the four movements are immigration, factory, protest, and fire. It was really important to me that I wasn't just making a piece about the victims. It, it was about these amazing women who came here. You know, some of them had only been here a few months and some a few years. They're self-educated. They're outspoken. They're coming over here on a, on a boat and landing on these shores. Um, they came for different reasons. I mean, the Eastern European and Russian Jews came because of persecution and also poverty. But in the Southern Italians, I think primarily because of natural disaster and poverty. So I guess poverty is a common theme. And they've come to these shores. They have sewing skills. And then as they enter into the American fabric um, and work in these factories, they realize this is not the country where the streets are paved with gold. And they are incredibly brave and resourceful. They're activists. They just were amazing individuals. And people like Clara Lemlich, who got up and spoke early on, her words are in the piece, actually in several places in the piece. Um, she's on the street. She's organizing. She's going to night classes where she's educating herself. And then she's beaten up by thugs. She was followed one day after work and beaten up, and they broke six of her ribs. And like very shortly afterwards, She's back on the picket line, so she was not going to be stopped. The title of the piece actually comes from an interview that she did many years later. Um, she was asked about her youth, and she said, ah, then I had fire in my mouth. 
And I think she meant she was feisty and outspoken. I don't even know if she thought about that she said the word fire, or, you know, in its relationship to the, to the fire. It's a wonderful title because it works both ways. Yes, and she had this incredible drive to, to make things right. In the second movement factory, you use words from Yiddish and Italian folk songs. Yeah, I actually literally used the folk songs. Well, first I set the scene with the factory, and that was really fun. Um, and I was hoping the orchestra would be game, and they they were. They're doing these crazy sounds. So the strings, for example, are playing uh, what I refer to as a Geiger counter sound. They're muting the pitch with their left hand on the neck of the violin, let's say, or, or the cello. And then they're taking the bow with their right hand and putting intense pressure on the strings as they bow and press down. And that produces this kind of clicking sound. So you get this kind of like like that. and Like a sewing machine. Like a sewing machine, exactly. So I did this little search with various instruments. What sounds the most like a sewing machine? And when you get that going through all those strings, it's just an unbelievably fantastic sound. Maybe the other sound that comes close also is um, the percussionists are rolling on the rims of the drum. So when you roll on the rim, which is metal, you get this really like, so you get this really like kind of you know clackety sound again, and um, all these sounds start to add up. The brass is blowing air through their instruments, so they're not again also not making pitch at least in the beginning. So you hear this kind of. knows what that is. It's just some factory thing. I could just, you know, keeping a regular pulse of that going. And so in the midst of all this cacophony of factory sounds, the choirs come in. First, the very mournful Yiddish tune, Mitte um, Nudel on a Noodle, which means with a needle, without a needle. And it's about sewing with pride. And, and it kind of floats above the cacophony. And then this very feisty Southern Italian folk song, which um, I believe it's Pugliese. It's really from um, like a dialect. And they come in. And they come singing this kind of close harmony. And they're bouncing up and down. And so the two are happening simultaneously. The slow, mournful tune, the feisty Italian folk tune, and um, and then all this factory thing going on. It was really um, fun, actually, to do that, and and that's that's factory, yeah. Just getting the the two cultures of women represented, as you did with anthracite fields. You use names as text, right? Last movement in fire, which of course was the hardest to figure out how to do because I I I really wanted to be respectful of the women that were lost. You know, I didn't want to be too gory. I didn't want to over-dramatize it. And so how do you deal with a tragedy like that? It, 
Um, it's so horrific. And, and in a certain sense, I went just to music. I mean, the moment that really is the roar of the fire is pretty much just music. There, There is some singing, but just like the choir's floating above them singing, I see them falling, and they're just kind of floating. But it's mostly an orchestral moment because it's, I guess in a certain sense, I just, I just felt it was beyond words. But at the very end, the very, very end of that movement, which is the end of the piece, I thought, well, I've got to have the names of the women in the piece. And at first I thought, well, maybe like I did with Anthracite Fields, I'll extract certain names just to represent the people that were lost. And I thought, well, should I do the younger people or should I do the people with this many syllables in their name? I couldn't figure out how to pull out names and leave out others. And I kept coming back to names that I recognized. So, for example, there was one person on the list, Fanny Lansner, and I had found out that she was the great aunt of someone I know. And I thought, well, I can't leave Fanny Lansner out. That's Gabby's aunt. And, you know, so, of course, they're all someone's aunt or sister or mother. And so I, and the aunt thought, I, I'm just going to figure out a way to include all 146 of these names. But to, to set 146, if I set them all one at a time, it, it would be a very, very long piece. And so I wound up doing these layers. And so you do lose some of the perception of what the name is once they start singing in counterpoint, but they're all there. And by the end, they're also there visually. So Jeff has them coming in little by little, um, like a name will appear and disappear, another name will appear and disappear. And then by the end, he has the complete list up on the screen. And what a group of artists performed Fire in My Mouth. First, the orchestra was the New York Philharmonic. They are really amazing. I hadn't worked with the New York Philharmonic before. I hadn't worked with the conductor, Jot von Zweden, and it was a fantastic experience. And then you had 146 singers. You had the Crossing, which is a chorus of 30 women, and then 110 singers from the Young People's Chorus of New York City. Those are a lot of voices. Well, I started off actually thinking this is a piece for chorus and orchestra. I'll, I'll need 36 women. Um, I wanted the number 36. And then I was in conversation actually with someone I work with, um, the person who's the head of my organization, Bang in a Can. That's Kenny Savelson. And Kenny was like, wow, wouldn't it be great if you had 146 singers? And I thought, that is crazy and amazing. We have to try to do that. And explain why you wanted young people as part of your chorus. First of all, I thought it'd be great to have young people because the women were young. I mean, they were on average in their early to mid-20s, but the youngest was 14, at least that died in the fire. And so plenty of teenagers, lots 16, 18, so they're kind of spanning between 14 to up to maybe mid-30s. We're running out of time, and there's so much more I want to talk to you about. This very, very frustrating. Describe that opening night. Oh, well, I don't think I've ever experienced anything like that. I went in knowing it was going to fly, I mean, in the sense that everyone was great. I didn't have any doubt about the orchestra. I didn't have any doubt about the conductor, and I had no doubt about the choirs. And, of course, live performance is always that. What's going to happen? So I went in with this incredible feeling of support for the piece. But nonetheless, it's a packed house, and everyone's there with me listening, and I think I was stunned. I felt so grateful, really, that I got to have this experience and put this on stage and have the support. It you know, just really felt beyond what I had imagined. Well, Julia, we have to go. It was such a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you so much for giving me your time. 
Oh, yeah. Thank you for, for asking. That was composer Julia Wolf. We were talking about her compositions inspired by events in labor history. Steel Hammer, Anthracite Fields, and Fire in My Mouth. My thanks to Bang on a Can for making the music to Steel Hammer and Anthracite Fields available. And thanks to the New York Philharmonic for allowing the use of Fire in My Mouth. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. Subscribe to Artworks wherever you get your podcast. And leave us a rating on Apple. It helps people to find us. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening.